Welcome to Christian Life Academy. We are in the second week of a uh, new go-round of the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession, which is our statement of faith. Uh, the, this confession is the um, most significant Baptist confession that there is uh, still today, and uh, in fact being more widely accepted today than any other confessions. Uh, in Baptist churches. But uh, we are starting uh, again to go through the confession. We're not actually in the confession yet. We're in an introduction uh, period. So we started a couple weeks ago with part one of the introduction. Uh, Probably will be today and maybe one more. Depends how fast things go today um, to finish the introduction. And then we'll actually move into the uh, preface to the confession and then go on from there. So uh, if you weren't here for the first class, I did lay out that there's going to be, this will be a slightly different format, and it really is just slightly different format than the last go-around. Uh, a couple of spe- pretty specific things that you'll notice. One is, is that I'm not going to read all the footnote scripture references. I will read some scriptures from time to time. Today there's a few that I'm going to read, uh, but for the most part, I will not take the time during the class to do that. Um, I want you to do that. And that is the other thing that is more significant, and that is that you're going to get homework now. And so specifically, that is that I'm going to be trying to ask, I'm going to be asking you to please read ahead in the confession of the paragraph or paragraphs uh, that we'll be covering so that you have an idea. And in that, you'll find the scripture references that you can read so that you see those references. Um, Now, there are other references that I have as I go through. I'll show you as we get into the actual confession itself because the footnotes that are in the confession are actually notated on the screen as well as we go through the slides. And so you'll see those, those little footnotes, number one, number two, number three. And then when I get to the end of the section, I have those footnote numbers in the scriptures listed. Same thing that you'll see in your own copy of the confession, same scriptures. However, you will also see that I have some that say also, and then I list some scriptures. And sometimes in the middle of an explanation, I will list some scriptures. And those are scriptures that you don't have in your copy of the confession, so you may want to write them in. You don't have to treat that book like it's a scripture. It's not the scripture. We're going to get into that in the introduction. But it's not the scripture, so you can write in it. You can write in the scripture too, okay? You can underline, make notes, put things on the side in my version of your Bible. This isn't the tablets that God's finger was on. This is your own copy. You can write in it. Any questions on that? All of you look serious right now. You lighten up a little bit, lighten up a little bit. All right. So last week we left off with um, talking, we were talking, basically working our way through what's the purposes for creeds and confessions, and we left off with uh, item D, which was that they're educational. And in fact, I read, um, I think I started out, what are they used for, with just like a list of everything, and then um, we're working our way through what the different purposes are. And there are uh, still uh, two more for us to cover. So this is the whole idea of what are they for, and so as we work through this, it's kind of important for us to recognize that there are some important things that creeds and confessions are used for. So the next one is, is that creeds and confessions promote the unity of the church. So here's a pretty good statement. Doctrines unite believers in like-minded fellowship, false doctrine divides. Doctrine, unite believers in like-minded fellowship, false doctrine divides. Look, you're here at this church, attending this church. We don't have any first-time visitors here today who are like, I don't even know what this church is about. No, everybody's been here. You've been here before. You came back because you have a clue of what this church believes. 
and you're comfortable attending here because of what this church believes. If you were to attend a church and you didn't agree with anything they said, you probably wouldn't continue to, to attend that church. Does that make sense? So this is pretty obvious. If we agree on our doctrine, then we can be together in like-minded fellowship. Does that make sense? False doctrine always divides. If it doesn't divide within the church, which it almost always ends up dividing within the church, then it actually divides because churches that have the false doctrine will not fellowship with true churches. Are you with me on that? Those true churches will say, well, we don't want anything to do with them. And usually the, doctor, the churches that have false doctrine will say, we don't want anything to do with those guys over there, right? That's what we're talking about here. So consider this. When we have no clear idea of what we believe, we're subject to disagreements, arguments, and pride causing divisions and dissensions in the church. Creeds and confessions allow the church to ensure that all the members are like-minded and avoid disunity. So having a creed, having a confession, these are things that we can clearly state, this is what we believe, and everybody can understand, this is what we believe, and so that avoids us saying, well, well, I don't know if I believe that, you know, some base, pick any basic doctrine. I don't know if I believe this way. Well, I don't know if I believe this way. Well, wait, this is what we believe as a church, right? Now, does that mean that every single aspect of every doctrine in the confession of faith, you have to agree with? Do we say that? We don't say that. In fact, we actually say the opposite. We say, when you fill out a membership application, and in the Constitution, it says you have to substantially agree. Substantially means there's wiggle room. <laughs> All right? That's, that's essentially what that means. So we do not say that you have to believe. Why? Look, just like the very origination of the Baptist Confession of Faith, we can recognize that there are other believers who are faithful people of God who disagree with us on some points. You understand what I'm saying? Now, there are some bottom line they can't disagree with. Like, if they say there's no such thing as God. Okay. You're not believers if you believe that. That's why we can make a statement that something like the Apostles' Creed, if you don't agree with everything in the Apostles' Creed, you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. We can say that with complete certainty. Why? Because that is the most basic statement of our faith that there is. That is the most basic statement of doctrines that there is. Notice the Apostle Creed doesn't talk about eschatology. It doesn't talk about baptism. It doesn't talk about church membership. Other than the universal church, the Catholic church, right? It is a very, very, very basic statement. Not quite as basic as Peter's statement to Christ. Right? That was a creed. But it is a very basic statement. Creeds and confessions allow the church to ensure that all the members are like-minded and avoid disunity. Look, how's that work? Here's how it works. If you have a problem with one of the doctrines that the church is doing, that believes, promotes, teaches, preaches, talk to an elder about it. What you shouldn't do is go talk to another member of the church. Why? You're sowing disunity. Specifically prohibited numerous times in the New Testament. You can't do that. Now, if you say, well, it bothers me, and I don't, they're not going to listen to me, so I'll just tell other people and see if maybe we can get people to change their mind. Really, you, you're purposefully sowing dissension in the church. If you have that kind of a position, you should leave. 
It's that simple. Look, if you go to Brands, you say, look, Brands, I, I know what you teach and what you preach, but I'm sorry to say that I just don't agree that we should baptize by immersion. You think Brands is going to change? Is he going to change? No. He's not going to change. It does say Baptist on a sign out front. <laughs> right? And Baptist means immersion. That's, that's, that is like, there's not even a question, there's not a debate, that's what it means. So if you were to say, well, I just disagree with that, I think sprinkling, I think, I think child sprinkling is really the way it should go, and blah, 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 and whatever, whatever the thing is, you just really disagree with the position of the church. Now you could say, well, I don't disagree with it enough that I need to get upset about it. You understand what I'm saying? You could say, I don't, this is not a big enough issue to me personally that I can't fellowship here. Okay. But if it is a big enough issue that you can't fellowship here, or that you can't not say something, or you can't not get it out, if you just disagree and you don't submit to what the church believes is a position and it's going to get under your skin, you should look for another church. You should pray for the Holy Spirit to lead you to another church. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about all the members are like-minded and avoid disunity. We are supposed to be like-minded. That doesn't mean robots. That means like-minded. Look, if you ask Paul and you ask Brantz and you ask me what our view on eschatology is, they're different. They're not exactly the same among us. Notice we haven't left. Why? Not necessarily that important. Now, if you are caught up in this idea that you have to have, you know, preached from the pulpit what's going to happen and when it's going to happen and how it's going to happen, this isn't the right church for you. But if you could just say, you know what, I just need to trust the Spirit to preach, for that they're going to be led by the Spirit and preach what should be preached here, and I'm not going to let that bother me. Praise the Lord. What you're really saying is you want to have unity. That's what you're saying. That's what we want. The fact is, the overwhelming majority of Christians agree in the overwhelming majority of doctrines. The major differences are generally in worship, government, and eschatology. The rest of the doctrines we agree with most Christians. Now, when I say that, I'm not talking about Baptist Christians. Right? I'm saying Christians. We agree with most. Now, this is a... <laughs> This is a difficulty, okay? But I'm going to throw this out there, and I just want you to gnaw on it in your mind. There could be some things that to you are unequivocal, I will die defending this hill issues that aren't that important. You know, it doesn't take much studying to look at the churches of the New Testament and see that there were pretty distinct differences between the churches. Right? It, and it wasn't just how the church behaved. It was what they tolerated. It was what they tolerated. Do we have any doubts that the church at Corinth was full of believers? We don't doubt that, do we? We don't doubt. But have you read Corinthians? Have you seen the stuff that was going on in the church and they thought it was okay? 
pretty bad. Pretty bad. So the next time that you see a church doing something and you think, I can't believe that they're doing that, have a little grace. Have a little grace. Paul didn't go back to Corinth and close the church. He sent them letters to correct them, to try to correct them. Did the first letter work? Some. Completely? No. Is 2 Corinthians all about, hey, you got it perfect, good job, the end. Say hello to everybody, the end. No. He's got more corrections, right? They went the wrong way on too far on something. A pendulum sprung too far on something, corrects them, right? This is what happens. This, this is not uncommon. We have to kind of get out of this mold where we think that somehow if a church in our personal view isn't doing everything perfect, they're not a true church. That's a lie from Satan. I'm sorry to say it, but we're not a perfect church. There is no perfect churches, period. Nowhere. Done. Any church you see and you think, man, I wish we were more like that church. I see this, I watch the pastor preaching. Do you think John MacArthur doesn't have problems in his church? Look, great preacher, great theologian, no question. You think there's not problems in his church? You think that everything that he says and does at his church is perfect? He's probably close. But is it? No. No, there are problems. Why? Because there's people. That's why. There's people. None of us is perfected. All of us is in the, on the road to sanctification. We're all trying to become more like Christ, but we are apt and prone to make mistakes. And how do we? Well, we shouldn't. No, we shouldn't. Thank you. Look at the New Testament. Did the apostles make mistakes? Some big ones. Remember Peter getting called on the carpet for saying that they had to be circum- Gentiles had to be circumcised? Do you remember this? That's a big deal. Here's the guy who was essentially leading the disciples, and now he gets called on the carpet by the new guy? I'm somewhat paraphrasing the actual events, but you understand, it was Paul, right? It was Paul. Paul that confronted him. Also interesting, by the way, the other disciples didn't step up and confront him. Did they? They agreed with Paul, but they didn't do it. This is the disciples we're talking about. Don't you like naturally think that they're like on a higher level than us? Right? I mean, look, walked and talked and taught by Christ. I can't help but think that they're at a higher level. (laughs) I can't help but think it. But they're still flawed and they still made mistakes. And they still did things the wrong way. And they still didn't understand things. And they were still confused about things. Now, we can't, in good conscience, hold other believers to a higher standard. Or somehow think that we're above the apostles. I'm sorry to tell you this. If no one's ever told you this, let me be the first. There's some things that you have you, Christianity, particular doctrines or issues or whatever, and you're wrong. You're wrong. Which ones? I I don't know. doesn't matter. The point is, don't be so self-confident and proud that you think you've got it all right. You don't. That's pride. That's pride. As soon as someone says, 
I'm perfect. I do everything right. I'm the only one that understands. I'm the only one that knows everything. You're just exhibiting how prideful you are, which honestly throws into doubt everything you think. That's a big deal. Pride is a huge sin. And it infiltrates and frankly causes many, many other sins. Pride. We have to be careful. We should recognize that most of the doctrines, most of the Christians completely agree. Okay, so now let me throw a few out there. And I'm just going to be honest. And I'm going to tell you that I struggle with them too. Okay? Is a church not a church if it has a woman pastor? I'm not looking for an answer. I'm just wanting you to think about it. So if they agree with everything else in our statement of faith, but they think that women can be pastors, are they not Christians? Is that not a church? Hmm. That's a little hard to think through that, isn't it? What about if they don't condemn homosexuality? Like, they say, look, God says it's wrong, but we'll still allow homosexuals to be members in our church. Is that not a church? Would you agree that homosexuality is a sexual sin? Would you agree that that's the case? Do we remember what happened in the church of Corinth? With a young man, or we don't know how young he was, a man and his aunt? No, mother. Mother-in-law, yeah. Stepmother, that's right. Do you remember this? Paul closed the church? No. Now, those are two tough issues, aren't they? Here's what we want to do. That's not a true church. Hmm. Where are you drawing that line? The difficulty is, is that you're drawing the line. You're drawing the line. Not God. You're drawing the line. I don't know how many scriptures we could look at in the New Testament that talk about what true believers are. Neither of those issues are part of it. Neither one. Am I saying it's okay? No. I'm not saying it's okay. I'm saying that we have to be careful about our assumptions based on our own opinions instead of God's word. Does God call homosexuality a sin? Yes. No, there's no doubts. It's very clear. Very clear. What about a church... I know this is probably worse than the other two. Who has contemporary worship music? Are they not a church? We have to be careful. We need to remember that most Christians agree. Now you could say, well, yeah, but that church or that church or this church or whatever, they don't teach doctrine as much. The people don't understand. (laughs) Epidemic. COVID wasn't. That is. It's an epidemic. Why? People are leaving the church like crazy. They have been for generations now. Why? Well, usually because they don't believe what the church teaches. Why? Well, they haven't been taught it. Plenty of studies that show that. 
they didn't they never got taught doctrine. So they leave the church. That's a problem. But is it not a church if they don't do this? Is this the only true church? Because we're doing doctrinal studies every Sunday morning? You'd have to say no, right? Let's remember this. The overwhelming majority of Christians believe in the overwhelming, overwhelmingly the same doctrines. Creeds and confessions inform the works of the church. Well, how? Well, first of all, it fosters and promotes worship. It's an aid to further knowledge of God, which should lead us in a desire to serve and worship Him. So if we understand God better, it should aid in, in helping us to desire to worship Him. It helps in evangelism. In other words, what will you tell others? What does it take to be a Christian? What are you going to tell them? The truths of the Bible and the contents of the gospel are easily communicated by using creeds and confessions. You can take a part of a confession or, or, the, or a creed and you can actually tell some, read it to somebody. Questions should ensue. Right? Well, what do you believe? Well, quote the Apostles' Creed. They might say, wow. Did you say Catholic in there? First question probably, right? <laughs> It's good. You can use creeds and confessions to do this. Fellowship. Fellowship begins with trust and knowledge. Distrust destroys fellowship. Creeds and confessions clarify what we specifically believe among each other. We can have closer fellowship with those who we are like-minded with, those that we believe the same things with. Can we have fellowship with those who we don't believe the same things Yes, does anybody else have fellowship with somebody outside this church? They should say yes, because you probably do. Somebody, right? Paul and Barnabas were sent to the Jerusalem Council to the Gentiles, and with them they sent letters to show the trust. I'm sorry, they were sent by the Jerusalem Council to the Gentiles. And with them they sent letters to show the trust and knowledge that was needed for these strangers to immediately begin fellowshipping with them. In other words, the Jerusalem Council gave them letters to show to the church. Could they have gained the trust of the, of the members of the churches that they went out to without the letters? Yes. But because they had these letters, they were able to immediately enter into fellowship with them. They were immediately able to begin preaching to them. You understand what I'm saying? Because they were like-minded. That's why. This wasn't some stranger coming in. The letters established that they were like-minded, and so fellowship begins right away. All right. Creeds and confessions have a social purpose. Creeds and confessions also have a social purpose. The religion of a people determines what type of government a nation will have, or a state will have. The government or state is to be a minister of justice to those who do good. We see that in Romans 13. Paul just mentioned it. We've heard it mentioned many times. Creeds and confessions dictate a biblical belief system. If accepted by a people, it will follow in the way their government acts. Are we there today? No. Were we there a couple hundred years ago? Yes. Yes. Has it cha it's changed. It's changed. The church is always important to the social order of society. There's no neutrality in morality or in government, by the way. There's none. Every government is one way or the other in morality. That's it. 
There's no neutral. There's no neutral. Nobody has, you don't have the ability to be neutral. <coughs> Neither does the government. It can't. That's why the Constitution of the United States was written the way that it was. Why? To act as a check. There were supposed to be this, these opposing forces that would keep people in check, that would keep laws in check, because it was clear there's not going to be neutrality, and people are going to try to swing the pendulum one way or the other, and by having the laws and the, the government established the way that it was, it was to keep a check to keep things from going too radical, to try to keep it neutral. Found ways around it. Okay. So... This is one of the purposes of creeds and confessions. Now we're moving on to another big section. What is the place of creeds and confessions? What's the place of creeds and confessions? We'll start by looking at some biblical history, and then we'll just look at some history after the Bible. Okay. Let me read Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. So here it is in English, in Hebrew. Shema Yisrael, Yahweh, Elohunu, Yehwah, Ikon. That means what I just said. This is what the Jews call the Shema. It literally means to hear. Shema, to hear. The Shema has served as a basic Jewish creed for 3,000 years. It's still quoted in the synagogue today. It's still written on their doorposts, gates, phylacteries, etc. It's one of the four pieces of scripture that's written on their doorposts and their gates. It's called the Shema. This is a creed. This is it. Deuteronomy 6, 4-5 is a creed. The Lord our God is one Lord. That's a creed. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. Now the Shema is the Lord our God is one Lord. That's what that is right there. The Lord our God is one Lord. Basic creed. New Testament. The New Testament contains several creeds that were used to state the beliefs of the church and the disciple what they held to be true. The first creed was to, we see is Peter's response to Christ in Matthew, just stay over here, Matthew 16, verses 15 and 16. This is Christ starting. He saith unto him, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. What was he stating? Christ asked him, Who do you say that I am? He repeated back his creed. This is what he believed. Peter was repeating what God had spoken, by the way, and he had witnessed on the Mount of Transfiguration. The very voice of God speaking and bearing witness. He heard God say this. God himself set the example for our creed. You can see that in Matthew 17, verses 4 and 5. But let's move on. Other creeds in the New Testament include 1 Timothy 3.16, Colossians 1. Well, you can see all the verses. Just look, them, look at them and write them down if you want to. I guess I should repeat them for anyone listening on audio. Colossians 1, verses 14 through 22. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8. And Philippians 2, 
verses 5 through 11. And if you look at each of those, it, they are basically creeds. They, not basically, they are creeds. They are brief, very brief explanations of beliefs. And also, by the way, usable as the gospel. Usable as the gospel. Well, what do you believe? This is what I believe. They're all very detailed. They're not just words or stories, but compound statements with each significant truth that are fully explained in other passages of Scripture. So we see these creeds, these things told here in these passages. It does not have a full expounding of every part of the creed. If you understand what I'm saying there. Not every place. But what they do have is a summary. So, let me give you an example. Peter answers, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He doesn't explain the implications of that statement. Do you see what I'm saying? He doesn't explain it there. Is it explained other places? Yes, particularly Christ. What is Christ? Anybody? What's Christ? Christ means, one word, starts with a dem. What? Messiah. Yeah. Most Jews would know exactly what that meant. Gentiles wouldn't, but Jews would. So when Peter answers back and says, Thou art the Christ, he's saying, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. How's that work? Where's that defined? How many Old Testament scriptures talk about the Son of God? Not many. Not many. You'll see the Son of Man. You'll see Kiss the Son. You'll see other references. But is it laid out completely clearly in the Old Testament, without the New Testament, before Christ, that God's Son, part of the Trinity, is going to take on human form and come to earth? Not clearly. It's veiled. We know now, oh yeah, look at, that's what that's saying. Yeah. But the Jews didn't understand that. They had to, they had to it had to be explained. They needed the light of the Spirit to illuminate them. The most significant historic creeds of the church, now we're in historical creeds, were usually focused statements of belief that were written in response to a heretical teaching that was gaining traction. So obviously there are statements in the scriptures, like the ones we just, I just mentioned, and showed some, there's more, plenty more, but I put a few references up there. Easily, you could just say, this is our creed. Quote one of those passages. Right? However, as the church grew, they had to begin to write creeds. Why? To address heresies. Why? Well, okay, good question. Thank you. First of all, as short declarations of faith, if, for example, the Apostles' Creed is 104 words, the Bible is 787,137 words. Is the Apostles' Creed a little shorter? Yes. They are often used in baptism, communion, and common services. In their most basic use, these creeds allow us to identify self-proclaimed Christians and to identify who can be baptized. What do we ask before communion? Christian, what do you believe? And then we quote the Apostles' Creed. We could quote the Bible. We'd take a little longer. Instead, we quote the Apostles' Creed. There are three major ecumenical creeds. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. We're going to, break them, we're going to look at each of them. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. And by the way, it is possible that uh, there will be a test. No, it's possible that you could see the Nicene Creed or the Athanasian Creed read at a service. I think we have done the Nicene Creed. 
some years. But it could be. Nothing wrong with that. <coughs> Nothing wrong with that. Uh, some services you might go to in other churches, they do it. I, I visited a church, Athanasian Creed, read the whole thing. In fact, I think it was a Lutheran church. Lutheran church. And they read the whole Athanasian Creed. They didn't actually even call it an Athanasian Creed. It was just listed in their order of worship. And I just, I recognize the Athanasian Creed. You know, they just read all the lines. They are considered ecumenical because they were accepted by three major branches of the church. What are those? Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, and Protestant. That's the three major branches of the church. Now, you might say, well, I don't know if that's so true anymore, blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, it is. I mean, <laughs> whether you accept it or not, that is the three major branches of the church. Are they all clearly laid out today as they were when the Apostles' Creed, for instance, was established? No. There's a lot more uh, in the fray, let's say. let's say, right? But is there still, today, Eastern Orthodox churches? What's an Eastern Orthodox church? They're, they're usually named after regions or countries. So what's one of them? Greek Orthodox Church. Albanian, is it really? Albanian Orthodox Church. I no. Russian Orthodox Church. Russian Orthodox Church. Shockingly, I met and had a great conversation with a Russian Orthodox yesterday. Not too often that happens. In Lapeer. And he goes to Holy Trinity Orthodox Church. I was like, Holy Trinity Orthodox Church? Where's that at? Eight Mile in Detroit. I was like, oh, <laughs> that's a long way. He said, well, there's not any Russian Orthodox churches up here. Oh, huh. well, that's true. I don't think. So that led us down having a lot of discussions about what an Orthodox Church was and what the Eastern Church was and what Russian Orthodox was and what their services look like. And very interesting. Very interesting. Does anyone know, besides Paul and Brands, where the Eastern Orthodox Church began? Yes. No, it didn't begin there, but that's a great answer. Because that's where it went to after its origins. Where was the origins? Antioch. Antioch. Where was Antioch? What, what today we go out? Then it was considered a part of what country? Today. There was no Turkey then. It's Greece. It was Greece. Part of Greece. Antioch was considered part of Greece. So, Antioch is what we're named. That's what we're named. That church, the Sea of Antioch, was one of the three seas of the whole church. We'll see that in a little bit. Alexandria, Antioch, and Rome. It was the three bishops, the three sees that existed in the church. The Sea of Antioch ended up moving to Constantinople. Good answer from Hattie. But notice this. They're still in Constantinople today. The head of the church of Eastern Orthodox churches, all Eastern Orthodox churches, is in Constantinople today. Does anyone know what religion dominates Constantinople today? Islam. Remember the armies of Islam that marched through, took Constantinople? The church existed. 
Has anyone seen the pictures of the Kremlin? You see this tower and you see this right next to it, all this onion-shaped domes on top of that building. It's a church sitting next to the palace in Russia. The church has never closed. The communist revolution of 1917 didn't close the church. Stalin killing people all over the country didn't end the church. The Eastern Orthodox Church has continued to exist. you know that they have documents that actually show all of the deacons, bishops, all the way back to the disciples? Church records. Now, they don't believe that the heads of the church are apostles. They don't believe that. They don't hold that position. But they've been a faithful church. Now, here, here's what happens. We don't consider them a church, do we usually? Why? Hmm. They believe and agree with the creeds that we do. They have more. They have more. Do they differ from us in doctrine? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. They've become a lot more Romanesque, adding works to salvation. But it was not always true. It wasn't true for Rome either. The church in Rome is the one that Paul went to be with. You remember that? Was hoping to get to Rome, wrote to him before, when he couldn't get there, and then ended up going there under arrest, but he still ended up going there, right? You remember this? Did they stray? They strayed. They strayed. But it's been gradual. It's been gradual over a millennia, more than a millennia. The Roman Catholic Church is basically one of the three. It's changed since then but they still agree with the creeds. And then Protestant, which we're lumping a whole bunch of people in Protestant. right? It's everybody that's not in the Eastern Orthodox or in the Roman Church. So <laughs> that's a lot. It's not just Protestant. And in fact, when we talk about Baptist, you have to understand something of what our understanding of history is of the church. Baptists weren't Protestants. The Anabaptists were but Baptists weren't. Baptists already held these doctrines that the Reformers latched onto. But the Reformers did a great job of explaining the doctrines and breaking away from the Roman Church. The Baptist Church did not start in the Reformation. It existed before that. For centuries, the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, and the Apostles' Creed were used in discipleship of new believers. So how do you teach somebody to know about their faith, you teach them the Lord's Prayer and expound on it. You teach them the Ten Commandments and expound on them. And you teach them the Apostles' Creed and expound on it. That's what they need to know. That's the basics of the faith. Many Christians were persecuted for the truths of these creeds and died refusing to renounce them. So this, we saw this through history where they would claim these creeds, they'd quote these creeds, and they were told you have to renounce the Apostles' Creed or you're going to be put to death, and they were. Because they wouldn't renounce it. Why? 
because it was a summary of everything the Scripture said. So, of course, they wouldn't renounce it. Okay, the Apostles' Creed. Well, we'll start on this. We won't get very far. The Apostles' Creed is the most basic creed indicating the most basic of Christian doctrines. It's based on Peter's confession to Christ, which we just read in Matthew 16, verses 15 to 16. The Apostles' Creed, which was we believe, there's no certainty, was written approximately 120 to 150 A.D., was not written, couldn't have been if it was written at that point, by the apostles, but reflects their teachings. Well, why is this important? Well, because Paul tells us the church is built on the teachings of the apostles and the prophets in Ephesians 2.20. That's what the church is built on. So why is it important that the teachings of the apostles are, are in this creed? Because that's what Christ says the church is built on. There, are, there were several anti-Nicene fathers. Now, I don't use that term too often, Nicene and anti-Nicene, but uh, basically these are church elders after the period of the apostles until the Council of Nicaea in 325. The Nicene fathers are those from the Council of Nicaea afterwards. So sometimes you'll see a book that's a reference to the anti-Nicene and the Nicene. Well, they, they actually were not against each other. It wasn't like anti-Nicene and pro-Nicene. Okay? It's just a time period. That's what we're talking about here. It's a time period. So they used rules of faith or creeds. We see Irenaeus in 180 AD wrote about it. Tertullian wrote about it in 200 AD. We see Rufinus in 340 wrote commentary on the Apostles' Creed. So when he actually wrote that, it already existed. The others actually expounded on parts of it. Like the exact wording that we still have today, they explained parts of it in their writings that we have. You understand what I'm saying? The final format of the creed was fixed approximately 380. We don't see any variations after 380. 380, from then on we don't see it. By the 8th century... It was the dominant Christian creed. So by the 700s, it's the dominant Christian creed. Augustine expounded on it. Luther expounded on it. Calvin expounded on it. There's been a lot of preachers and deep thinkers that have expounded on the Apostles' Creed. Roman Catholics consider the Apostles' Creed inspired. So here's where they diverge. Roman Catholics consider the Apostles' Creed inspired. They believe it was actually written by the apostles themselves. How? Peter writing the first line, each of the twelve writing the remaining lines. So if you look at the Apostles' Creed, you can break it down into twelve. There's no historical evidence of this whatsoever. None. It didn't actually pop out until about 1000 A.D. at one of the councils. So, kind of a problem, where you have no historic evidence whatsoever, then all of a sudden you come up with this idea. So they consider it inspired, that creed, which is a problem. By the way, uh, it's quoted in almost every Roman Catholic Mass. I don't know that I've ever heard of a Roman Catholic Mass where they didn't. I know marriages they do, funerals they do, uh, general Mass they do, uh, Advent Mass they do. <laughs> heard that? Okay. It's believed to be a response to the heresy of Gnosticism. So, we talked about creeds being written to respond to heresies, right? It's believed that the 
Apostles' Creed was actually a response to the heresy of Gnosticism, which is salvation comes through secret knowledge. The material world is all evil, and only the Spirit is good. So this results in the teaching that Christ was not really man. See, if you think that everything physical, or temporal, as you can call it, is evil, right? All flesh is evil. Then you cannot believe that God became flesh. Because it's evil. He can't become evil. You understand? So they would say, no. Christ was only a spirit. He appeared to be flesh, but he wasn't flesh. Okay, do you see how that changes the sacrifice? That means if he wasn't really flesh, he didn't really have to die. He didn't really die. He didn't really endure pain and suffering. He wasn't dead. He therefore didn't rise from the dead because he was a spirit the whole time. Without all that, you're not saved. You can't be. Okay, we'll stop there. It's perfect timing. So we'll pick up next time with why the Apostles' Creed, and we'll talk about that. Let's close in a word of prayer.